Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Rhiannon Lambert was made Classic FM's Singer of the Year at just 17 years old. As a soprano and writer, she has worked with Warner Brothers and Sony BMG and is a member of the female opera group Passionata. After an exciting career change, she is now a registered nutritionist, specialising in weight management, disordered eating and sports nutrition, and is founder of leading Harley Street clinic, Retrition. She is a best-selling author of Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well, and also hosts her own podcast, Food for Thought. In 2020, she was made CN Magazine's Personality of the Year. It is my utter pleasure to welcome Rhiannon into the Classical Corner today. Hello, Rhiannon. It is wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for coming into the Classical Corner today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a podcast I've been really looking forward to record with you. It's definitely different to my day-to-day activities. So thank you for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure. So today's podcast is a little bit different from usual Classical Corner podcasts and the fact that we're not actually just focusing on music solely, but also nutrition as well, too. So I'd love to start off by delving actually into your musical background and find out a little bit more about you and your life as a musician and a singer, why you chose music as your first career and and really how you really started off in the industry. Gosh, where, where to start? I, I guess... Um... Yeah, mu- music was always my first calling. I was one of those um, unusual children that would rather watch Phantom of the Opera at the age of seven or listen to the, because it was cassettes in the car back then when I was younger, listen to a cassette recording of musical theatre rather than the current boy band that all my friends perhaps were into at school. So, so I had a love of um, performance from a very young age in terms of that type of genre of music, musical theatre and the odd aria here and there that you that we could throw in. The more common, you know, the more well-known um, crossover type. But it wasn't really until ooh, secondary school where I started entering competitions um, around the country that I really thought, oh, I could actually do this seriously. You know, this could actually be my career in music. And none of my family musical at all. Um, no one could sing. No one played an instrument. It was just something I, I, I could do. And I would listen to things on the radio and I would mimic what I heard. So I hadn't had any formal classical training. There was a local singing teacher that helped me for a while, but we weren't doing any correct grading at that point in time. So there weren't, was, there were no kind of um, facilities in my local small town to do anything like that. And I entered a competition because my um, music teacher at A-level, um, so I was doing A-level music, I'd pick to progress on and use voice as my, um, as my instrument said, oh, there's this competition with Classic FM, Rhiannon, you know, you should enter. I was like, oh gosh, you know, I think it's a bit out of my depth. I haven't really <laughs> had any classical training and I don't really think I'm cut out for this. 
but she persuaded me and I uploaded a track of myself singing Strauss's laughing song. Um, mm. Looking back, it's actually embarrassing. Um, <laughs> back, you know, without technique, without correct diaphragmatic breathing, a lot of places and things that a lot of other classical singers would probably be like, why on earth did this person get where she is? But I did have a natural ability to sing and I, I won the competition. I couldn't believe it, an audience vote. And I got swept up to London. I got signed pretty quickly to make an album, record labels. That's how it all started, to answer your question. It, it's a bit of a whirlwind, you know. I was plonked in Camden Town from going from the country to Camden Town Completely. in, a, in a, a council block of flats, living with some other musicians that were studying at the Royal Academy of Music at the time. And that, that was my kind of door in. That's when everything, everything started for me. Oh, my goodness. Yes, because I, I did read that or know that you actually did train. I thought you did train at the Royal Academy. I did after. So the competition prize from Classic FM was to enable me to get tuition, which is something I could never have afforded or dreamt of getting. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky enough to get one-to-one -one tuition at the Royal Academy of Music as part of the record label and the competition prize. I just had to pay my rent every month with my retail job that was my that's amazing yeah it's pr pretty insane <laughs> really insane I mean I I also went to the, the Royal Academy of yeah. Music I I trained there at the junior department from the age of sort of 7 to 18 yeah and then I actually went back and did my master's there um in my 20s so it really feels like home yeah. to me that institution and I mean it really is an incredible uh, conservatoire I think oh, filled with so many opportunities and amazing teaching um and was this somewhere that sort of inspired you to continue uh, delving into the profession having having learned there I couldn't believe I was there I mean what, what you've just said it's so prestigious and you've got Regent's Park directly behind the building itself has so much history there are lots of renowned musicians that have obviously graduated from there and it was just inspiring and I think it felt rather special at the time and I got to merge with some other students that were doing courses there. I, I made a lot of friends on the postgrad courses, the ones I lived with doing piano or violin and a lot of musical theatre students on the musical theatre course there that they have um, and the opera. It, it was just, it was honestly, yeah, incredible, the buzz to feel a part of it. And I remember my bus route from Camden, my flat, the number 27 bus that drops you right outside the Royal Academy yes. of Music and it's opposite Harley Street. And I remember yes. back then seeing the Harley Street sign and thinking, oh, I've heard of that street. That's quite a famous street. And, <laughs> and now you work on Harley Street with your own practice. I mean, yeah. incredible. So you've actually accomplished two wonderful, wonderful things, Royal Academy and Harley Street. Yeah. I mean, top of the top. Pretty crazy. And you look back, but I look back and that's where I spent so much of my time in that area. And now that area is so central to my entire life. So it's, yeah, yeah I think things are meant to be sometimes. Definitely. And is there a sort of particular genre that you focused on during your studies? Because you said before you were doing a lot of musical theatre. Because um, I know you went on to become a member of the opera group Passionata, yeah. Yeah. which focuses on opera and yeah. classical vocal music. Yeah. But have, have you sort of ever delved into other genres? So really, at the time, I was there because of the record label and what they wanted me to achieve. So as you can imagine, you would get a, a broad tuition, predominantly starting off with your classical training you would then learn to manipulate vocal techniques to sound a bit pop when you needed to so um singing 
with a bit more breath or losing your control rather of diaphragmatic breathing and um, losing vibrato from the voice. Because what I found very difficult at that age was I naturally had a vibrato in it. Of course, a lot of opera singers and when you go into that genre, it's encouraged to sing and use. But in yeah. the in the recording industry, they did not like it. And I had to spend a lot of time learning how to manipulate my voice to create a unique sound that they wanted on their label. So it was was quite strenuous when I look back. Um, Of course, at my age, when my voice was still growing and maturing as well, it was very difficult because they wanted it to be suppressed almost to a very pure um, sound. And my voice was maturing. That sort of choral, soprano, just straight sound. And actually with a voice, I I also used to sing and I studied at the Royal Academy singing as well. And I um, I know that that sort of the sound that, well, a lot of choirs yeah. would be looking for, certainly in early music, but yeah. you can't, if you've, I don't have naturally inbuilt vibrato, so actually it would be much easier. But if you've already got that, oh, it's, so it's almost like having a t- certain body type <laughs> yeah. and being told actually, yep. well, can you just sort of make your legs a bit thinner there just for this bit? Yes. You know, it's yeah. like, but I, I, it's part of my voice. I can't... Oh, it, it. it was so difficult. And I remember crying over it many times and trying so hard and going back over the recording, listening to what I'd done, having to retake it. You know, I, I was under pressure with the studio. They'd say, oh, we've hired the studio, Rianne, and you know, the label's hired this. You've got it for this amount of time. You have to get this bit right. This is oh, this God. isn't working. Um, you know, all those, ty- there's those types of pressures. And because I hadn't had a formal classical training beforehand, it was so much in such a short period of time to absorb and take in and doing my vocal exercises daily and trying to fit in the time alongside your work to earn bills. It was just a lot. It's a huge amount, <laughs> huge amount and very overwhelming. And there's nothing worse. I mean, a wonderful thing about working with a great producer is that they, when you're recording, they make you feel relaxed yes. and kind of we've got this bit or they just put you at ease. But it's terrible working with a producer who makes you feel flustered because we're always ourselves we put ourselves under a huge amount of pressure anyway and to be if you're a musician you're already very self-critical anyway oh my goodness Um, yes so you don't need someone else on top of that um anyway Rhiannon has got a really beautiful voice which I think we should all enjoy today so here is an extract from a track that she wrote for Passionata called Magisto Thank you. 
So a number of years ago, you made rather a drastic career change, which we've already touched on, moving from the music industry into nutrition. I'd love to find out how this sort of came about and what was the catalyst for you moving into a different industry? Yes, I guess um, it was a pretty dramatic change when I look back. It's poles apart from where I thought I was going to be. I'd spent several years when all my friends were at university doing something else. All my musical friends were so set on just their music dreams, suddenly going somewhere else. But I'd always had a side of me that enjoyed study and the music industry became a little bit toxic and it wasn't a good place for my mental health. I mean, you've already heard how I found the recording artist strains mm-hmm. quite mentally taxing. There's also the body image strains. Um, yeah. As a singer, you don't have an instrument or a distraction on stage. And I do think a lot of the time, a lot of people will assess you from how you look before you totally. even open your mouth, as you know. Absolutely. Completely. It's very image centric. And back then, we're talking 2000 and the gap when I was working on the music was around 2007 to 2014-ish, that kind of spectrum, those years. Mm. Um, There was a lot of diet products, a lot of, I don't know, special K diets, the all sorts of fatty, um, fatty things basically floating around. And I thought they dictated health. And I thought in order to be the better singer, to be the better person, I had to immerse myself in this world Uh, I just wasn't happy and fulfilled I think looking back I had a really disordered relationship with food and nobody had ever really picked me up on it or because they thought it was normal it's just what you did um you know I would I would sing on the side of fashion shows and there's one moment that sticks in my head really clearly I was um was one of the label um suggestions I was doing this kind of ethereal ah, sustained ahhing and ooing as we do at the side of the runway. And all these (laughs) models would walk down and, you know, strut their stuff and do their thing. And I felt so out of place anyway, not being a model. And I was sat backstage chatting to some of the girls who were really lovely. But one of them was just, um, she said, oh, do you want some? And she offered me some cotton wool. And I remember being like, well, what am I going to do with that? What am I going to do with that? Yeah, she goes, oh, it just keeps you full. It was atrociously bad and oh my goodness the thought of it the text anyway I that was a pretty big light bulb you know we've all got light bulb moments for me that was this isn't right I don't feel happy or secure here and I remember looking and reading and thinking I want to go to university I need a backup plan if this music career doesn't work out it was the economy crashed it was a bad time labels were merging classical crossover wasn't becoming as popular and I'd spent ages trying to get this sound that now suddenly yeah was yeah dying out which I'm sure a lot of musicians can relate to it was so huge um, I remember topping classical crossover charts back then and doing all these things and it just vanished it was starting to dwindle unless you're Catherine Jenkins in my um field back then you're pretty non-existent um to cut a long story short I enrolled in university after previously I'd gone to the doctor actually for some help because I knew something wasn't right and he just gave me antidepressants and said off you go that will help you and the solution wasn't the antidepressants it's that I needed a new focus a new change I need to get out of the music environment and immerse myself in something else and my nutrition career began I enrolled in uni in a career in nutrition nearly dropped out so many times going from music to hardcore science as an underdog and being the eldest on the course yeah um even though I was only 21 I was the oldest of course (laughs) it was hard I wasn't there to socialize I was there to study yeah and from that moment on that's when my nutrition education began that's absolutely amazing um what a 
incredible story and I love you know light bulb moment as well I mean yeah, yeah the music industry is certainly a really tough one and it's actually something I wanted to touch on today actually hearing your story because it's so competitive mm. I think not only are we trying to be our best and excel at your instrument stay on top of your game but you're also trying to sort of show and prove to your peers and employers that you're worth it that you've got everything together that you're unique that they should choose you mm. um over everyone else and i think that you know the driz- the sort of driven perfectionistic and focused mentality that we have um behind excelling at either a sport or an instrument yeah. um is actually inbuilt from from a very young age because you know as you said you started singing very young you were you were driven yeah like your mind was focused on that. That's what you, when you were in the car, you wanted to listen to those tapes. No one told you to listen to that. That was an inbuilt, mm. you know, um, reasoning in your mind. Um, so I, I completely um, not simply, you know, empathize and understand your career choice because, you know, as a musician, I can certainly say that, you know, we have our own self inner criticism to to um deal with um but then there's also you know the desi- the desire to strive for more to show that you're yeah. all together um to not show any weakness mm-hmm. as soon as any weakness is shown i mean there will be a younger prettier oh, better um whatever um model yeah. i suppose that we can be replaced with mm. and um it's a very difficult thing to sort of get caught up with i mean i suppose i'm lucky and the fact that I specialise in early music mm. and a lot of that is quite kind of not book led, but it's um, I'm working with sort of pioneers in the industry who are about sort of 70 years plus. Yeah. So it's not that that kind of I'm not in the pop industry, yeah. so it's not that pre- pressurised. But there are still those hidden pressures, mm. I think, um, that we all have to deal with. And um, I know one of your areas actually in your clinic is uh, among ment- um, maternal health and sports nutrition is actually disordered eating. Yeah. Um, is your story something that actually prompted you to specialise in this? Oh, a hundred percent. And I, I think it was, as you've quite rightly just said, most driven professions where you need to be driven. Uh, where you're completely self-sufficient upon yourself. We all have that inner critic. And there was a deep psychological component. I didn't start knowing that was going to be where I'd end up. But I was about a year into my nutritional practice, realising I didn't have enough qualifications to speak to people in the right way to help them. I, I was discovering I was becoming a bit of a therapist in the sessions. And I thought, this isn't quite right. You know, I've, I've got two degrees, yet none of them covered the information on how to speak to people. So I enrolled in a psychological um, master's and I became a master practitioner in the psychological interventions to disordered eating and eating disorders. So I received training with the British Psychological Society, um, basically just looking at the psychology of nutrition. And it took me a very long time to complete, but it's something that I insist that all of my current team have that same training or training that's equivalent to it, because I'm a big believer that every element of nutrition has a psychological component. It always stems back to childhood or your journey with food, what I call your food script, like the play of your life and how food has come at different points. Definitely. And to me, I was very passionate about making sure that people viewed food as so much more than just an aesthetic or just a control. Because a lot of the time for some people as well, they don't know why food becomes a crutch. It's just a coping strategy. I mean, I think for me back then, I didn't realise it was just something I could control. 
in my life. I was waiting on labels, waiting for my big break, waiting for this yes. Yeah. You know what it's like, this no, this yes. It's just ongoing. Will they like this Everything's album? out of control. What can I yeah. do to actually have some kind yeah. of control in my life, feel like I've got it together? Yeah. The only thing when you're on a budget as well is food. There is There is nothing else you really can afford or do. So that would have been it. And I think for a lot of people food on all ends of the spectrum. We're not just talking about undereating or um, a predisposed psychological disorder. It can be overeating or it can be numbness. You can eat with a numbness, a void, an emotional spectrum that is filled on the top and the bottom. Uh, so yeah, I'm very passionate about making sure the Retrition Clinic has you know, the skills to help people in all areas. Absolutely. Uh, I completely agree that it is all kind of psychological and our relationship with food is all built in with that. Yeah. I mean, in a freelance world, there's also the, you know, the stigma of mental health that we we also need to kind of combat. Um, and we should really be supporting each other. Um, it's sort of got, certainly in the music world, I think, it's got some, such a sort of embarrassment attached to it. Mm. Um, and sort of not reaching out or admitting that you need help is almost like an athlete or a dancer not sort of going to the physio because they've got a sprained ankle. Um, or if someone finds out um, all the training might be a waste, you might be replaced with somebody else. Um, and I think that the world, despite whether one is a musician, a nutritionist, or just a freelancer, is a very competitive kind of cutthroat it is. world and we need to support each other and actually mental health um is seen as such a, a weakness uh, which is crazy because a large proportion of the most brilliant and successful people on the entire planet have some sort of mental health issue whether it be anxiety depression eating disorders um so it's i think certainly within the music industry it's something that we really need to sort of break the back of. I mean, I can see that changes are happening. I mean, if you look back to when I was in it to now, there are more represent. There's more representative body shapes and sizes. Um, there's all spectrums. There's more colours, ethnicities, it, and it's getting more diverse, which is brilliant. But I do actually feel strongly that the classical genre isn't as diverse, and I do think that yeah, there's a lot. I agree. Yeah, there's a lot that can be done in all genres of music, and it's still not right. You know, you will still get the media picking up on certain people. And for instance, if a famous violinist had just performed. Um, at Cadogan Hall and the write-up um, may still say and so-and-so stood there in a dress that looked like this and this is what they looked like yeah. when they delivered the performance. The There's still that element on the appearance before mm -hmm. how the piece is delivered and you will still pick up on that in mainstream media a lot of the time. So it's, it is everywhere and until the outlook on that changes ever so slightly that appearances are not everything we're still going to have this problem, I think. And mental health is being spoken of more and more, yet it's not being applied to the industry, yes. if that makes sense. Completely. It really does make sense. So I'd love to move on to something slightly different, yeah. and that's actually diets for yes. musicians. Mm. Now, we're on the go an awful lot, um, and there are two sort of scenarios that I'd like to address. So the first would be sort of touring on the go, irregular meals, long physical hours of playing, traveling, different place every day, that sort of thing. And then the other scenario would be actually more sedentary, sort of sitting in a recording studio every day, not sort of physically tired, but mentally drained and feeling sort of sluggish. So I suppose one could sort of split that in food for the muscles and food for the brain. And, and how we can sort of recommend 
what we should be eating or focusing on in that scenario. Which I love those questions. And it's interesting the way you angled it because actually both are involved in both outcomes. So it's just getting the ratios right because your brain is, you know, you're fueling your body with everything, thinking about the movement you're about to do, sending those signals down, speaking to your gut every single day. So, and I've worked with very famous people that are touring and it's been an incredible experience to help them um you know james mcveigh from the vamps um gary barlow people that are on the go a lot and it's hard for them i mean some of them are very lucky they're in a situation that i can say i'd like them to eat xyz and they'll get delivered to their room but yes exactly <laughs> but no to most of us unfortunately that's not accessible so the advice would be to learn, first of all, what type of food your body requires. And often it's making sure you aim for that balanced plate scenario at breakfast, lunch and dinner. So have you got the whole grain carbs? Have you got a bit of protein with your lunch, breakfast and dinner? Because if you buy a sandwich from a supermarket on the go, you won't get enough protein in it. It's very unlikely that you will get an adequate amount of hummus if you're a plant-based eater or chicken if you eat meat or the fish. The quantity will be minimal and let alone the fiber that you require for from any fruit and vegetables or vitamins and minerals, you might get a slice of tomato and a, a lettuce leaf. So you really have to think outside the box and get creative. And that might mean that you buy a cucumber and you just slice it up when you're there and you borrow a knife from a kitchen or something, or you look at the facilities you've got to hand. You always arm yourselves with spoons, spoons in your own cutlery that you can wash in the room that you're staying at that night, just mm -hmm. in case there's nothing in the afternoon at the rehearsal venue. Some places are terrible at providing green rooms and facilities and you really have to prep it all yourself. So making your own trail mix is a really good idea for people that are yeah. on the go. Buying the individual packs and then portioning it out, making sure you pack your own Tupperware. Uh, even things that you can microwave if you've got a microwave in your room or you can cook and take with you cold. Um, things like mm -hmm. vegetarian sausages are really good for that because you can keep them cold and eat them cold on the go. So it, it's really thinking outside the box, even buying those cooked grain packs and microwave packs of rice and things yeah. that you can then make and build your own plate with. So it doesn't always have to be a prepackaged salad or a prepackaged sandwich or a microwave meal. You can get your own, buy a pot of yogurt, buy some fruit and then put it together for your fruit salad and yeah. buy a pack of oats and sprinkle it on. And that oat, that pack of oats will last you the entire journey for the week. You can make porridge every morning with them. So... There's ways around it in terms of the convenience factor, but you do have to be organised and prepared. This takes quite a yeah. bit of thought. And unfortunately, oh, what's that saying? Prepare, prepare to fail or something. If you are, yeah. you know, you know which one I mean. You have. To, I know the same. Yeah, or fail if you don't prepare. There's something along those lines. But if you are sad, sedentary in a studio all day, you will still be using more energy than you think. But you probably yeah. don't require as much carbohydrate. So right. I would just reduce the portion, still have it, do not cut it out because your body does need those carbohydrates. It's just the portion doesn't have to be as big as you would perhaps normally have. And it's about avoiding things that you don't, you don't really need as much of. So you don't really need as many desserts when you're sat in the studio. Whereas, <laughs> you know, when you're on the go touring, enjoy it, go for it. If you know that you are literally pushing the candle at both ends, you can afford to eat in that way more often than not. So... Mm. Getting those key micronutrients in is crucial. Making sure you've got the supplements you require. So vitamin D in the winter and autumn months, that's going to help with your energy. If you know you're deficient in iron or you've been to your GP, do not forget your supplements. The amount of times that 
I've had clients come to me, I feel really fatigued and tired. I'm like, well, have you been taking your iron or your B12? They're like, no. And I'm like, but you are diagnosed with a deficiency. <laughs> you need to take these. I'm waffling now, but there is a lot that can be done. There is a lot. Water. That Absolutely. Thing I should just mention water, 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 tons of it. I have a terrible relationship with water. Oh. I just All musicians don't do. like it. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I think there's some sort of mental block about drinking too much, not being able to go to the yeah, loo, um, being travelling. Mm. And therefore I can't, um, you know how you just, I've sort of trained myself to not really like water. Yeah. And of course you can prepare everything. Now, if you're in a recording session, mm-hmm. you're allowed to have your bottle of water. You're even allowed to take water on stage mm-hmm. if you really want to. Mm-hmm. That's totally fine. Um, and what are the chances that anything bad is going to happen? Probably 0% or 1%. Um so, but I think it, again, it's a psychological thing that we 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 build up these retraining to allow yourself to stop on stage and take a sip of water because actually the act of doing that, and I find it a lot when I'm giving talks now, um, I'm getting much better at it. I will just stop mid sentence sometimes if I have to. But people, it, to people, it's a split second. But to you, it feels like an eternity, and you can hear yourself swallow. It's terrible. <laughs> I know, and they're just—they—they they just in that time have just probably just scratched their head and looked at the yeah. person next to them. They haven't even noticed. No, exactly. It's on us. We really do need to take control of our hydration because hydration affects your mood, your concentration, your performance, and um, as well as sending signals around your body to each cell to embark upon the activity they need to embark upon. So it, it, it's very important. Yeah. Absolutely. And and as you know, obviously performing uses up a huge amount of adrenaline. Um, <sighs> so, you know, playing at Carnegie Hall or the proms is exhilarating and exciting, but o- often obviously very nerve wracking as well. Um, and often I find myself in the situation where I'm sort of on tour for two weeks, different concert, different venue every single night. Mm. Um, and obviously we love thriving and enjoying that adrenaline, but it's also very um energy sapping um and is there any way that um athletes or musicians are able to actually replace adrenaline or how can we refuel ourselves when our sources are low so adrenaline comes from the adrenal glands that just sit just above your kidneys if you can imagine the two circular kidneys well oblongy shaped on your back and then above them two little teeny golf ball sized um adrenal glands and they secrete cortisol stress hormones and adrenaline And it's not actually good to have prolonged periods of these hormones circulating your body. It actually can deplete other nutrients. Um, And it's very, very important that after performance, you do try and bring yourself back down and deep breathing, tapping into the parasympathetic nervous system. I know a lot of musicians are fans of Alexander Technique for that reason. Yeah. just really looking at ways you can be set instead of going on a night on the town. I know it's so that's so tempting. I know that's it, that's what I do. Um, yeah, yes. well, everybody does. And but I have strict rules with my VIP clients, and they do abide by them. They do go home. They do have a bath, even if it's eleven o'clock at night. They will do their nighttime routine in order to help themselves sleep better. So often, an Epsom salt bath after a performance, or a magnesium cream that you can rub on, just to yeah. relax the muscles, replenish any nutrients. You can take an electrolyte sachet if you feel you've lost a lot of sweat. That's a great tip. That's a really good idea. You can't control the stress hormones, but you can do things to replenish and help your body restore. And a good night's sleep is the only way you're going to get the maximum restorative kind of properties. So you need to really work on unwinding as quickly as you can after a late night performance. 
It sucks. Everything's so late these days. I know. You start at eight. I mean, it's even worse if you're in Italy or Spain. You don't start until yeah. 10. Then everyone wants to go out for tapas yes. at sort of 1am. And you're yes. sort of, okay, well, I better go. Yes, I better have a, another and large gin and tonic. Yes, and espresso I, martini. Exactly. And then before you know it, it's 2am and you've got to get up at six and you think, oh my God. But you yeah. just sort of get through it. But um, that's really, really interesting and something that I'll definitely work on actually mm. um, trying to because I, I do have quite a strict nighttime routine anyway yeah. at home, but it's something that's not not goes out of the window when I'm on tour, but you sort of let things slide a bit, don't you? And actually... Just have the recording or get the Headspace app and just do a minute. Just all it takes is a minute just to just do your diaphragmatic breathing, just relax. And that's all it takes for your body to go, um. Yeah. And it will happen very quickly. Yeah. So just getting into a routine of that, that's, that's mm. a really great tip. Thank you. Um, and obviously, with regards to traveling and playing, um, as I mentioned, we're often in a different sort of city or country every single day doing yeah. some yeah. crazy concert um, and having very, very late lights and, and no sleep. Um, how can one pace oneself for a sort of long, a long tour? So maybe if you're only going away for three concerts, you sort of can afford to burn the candle at both ends if you really want to. But if you're away for sort of three weeks... Um, you can't, you can't sort of get done in mm. on day two. And obviously we have our um, our physical health, you know, muscles and everything mm -hmm. else to, to look after. Um, are there any sort of foods that we should be focusing on eating to help restore that? Yeah. Um, musicians are almost the same as athletes in this respect, that you need a regime, you need structure and you need to plan it. And it's very rare when they do, but you should, um, you should treat it as you wake up at set time, look at the time zones and try and prioritize obviously getting into mm -hmm. that time zone as soon as you can, or the opposite, staying on your time because you know the place you're moving yes. on to next is going to work, which is hard. So it's always worth traveling with a blackout blind just so you can pin it on the window, depending what time of day behind the curtains yeah. just to help with sleep. So I always tell my clients to pack blackout blinds. That I've never even heard that before. That's amazing. That's yeah. going straight in my suitcase. Good. Yeah, but, and on the plane, don't forget your eye mask. Just little things that can really, really, really help. Set your alarm and get movement in when you wake up. So a stretch when you wake up in the morning and then have your breakfast and then maybe a mini 20-minute workout or a walk and explore the local area and then get to rehearsing, then get to warming the muscles up. If you're a singer, you know you need to do your exercises. Mm -hmm. Same, yeah. I guess, any musician, you need to do your stretching, you need to work on all of it. Food-wise, it's getting the variety in. And I would also recommend potentially traveling with a probiotic just because the different microbes in different countries and the food that you consume, it may be new for your gut. It may be a different experience. And especially if you've been on planes as well, there'll be a bit of bloating or excess gas. And this is why the movement, by the way, is really right. beneficial because you want to be stretching the muscles out. You want your digestive system, which is meters long, it's seven meters long, it's huge, you need to be stretching in order to aid blood flow, in order to get everything right. moving through. So you need as much fibre. Try and get on the local food if you can, um, gently, mm -hmm. step by step, if there's something different. Avoid things that are triggers like spicy yeah. foods, which will wreak havoc with your digestive system wherever you go. Um, but ultimately, yeah, try and take a probiotic. There's a specific strain for traveller's diarrhoea, um, if you get that, that you can get called, I can never pronounce it, saccharides bouliardi. And try and get some lactobacillus from Greek yogurt that's native to that country or things that are just going to help your tummy. Because I think for a lot of musicians, if you've got a cramping tummy or an IBS flare up or a moment because adrenaline can wreak havoc on your digestive system. Absolutely. It really can. And that would be the first 
often one of the first places that you actually feel it is in your stomach and that then makes you even more terrified oh my god I'm not going to be able to play in the concert oh no I'm letting everyone down and then that goes and I can't eat now I can't eat now um Mm -hmm. oh I can't eat now yeah Mm-hmm. And then you find yourself having gone for a whole day without eating anything. And then, well, I can't eat now because yeah. it's too late. You need to always pack crackers in your bag. Every musician should always have just white plain crackers as a backup and some fruit like bananas stuffed in your suitcase. Because if you are having one of those days, that's what you eat. Plain food and maybe the old banana. And you'll have it or your yeah. hotel room will have exactly. a banana most likely or they will have a white cracker. But if you've got it, less stress. Pack those diorolite sachets and just rest you know if, if that's happening to you the best thing you can do is lie on your back on bed do yeah the deep breathing close your eyes for a bit and try and calm yourself exactly no you're you're absolutely right and in terms of the probiotics and the gut health mm. is that something that we should be looking at in advance i mean obviously we should probably do it at, at home as well but is there any sort of quick fix for gut health or is this all to do with how a bit like vitamins the levels um accumulate over months of taking probiotics yeah Keeping it topped up. And probiotics aren't actually the answer in advance. That would just help potentially manage symptoms if you come down with something. Um, There's a lot of research out there on different strains, but they're not miracles. The best thing you can do is eat a diet that's diverse consistently before you go or generally day to day that contains live bacteria. So things like kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, kombuchas. Kombuchas are not such a great source, but they do taste great and serve an alcoholic beverage. Get a kombucha. Um... And then lots of fibre, fruit, vegetables and whole grains. If you can get your diet to be more plant-based, which means just reducing animal products and getting as many plant-based meals as you can alongside it. So it doesn't mean never have fish or meat if that's what you eat, but just have maybe one portion a week or two maximum. That's going to do you wonders in the long run, as well as increasing the water. And then you will be optimally healthy because 70% of your immune system lives within your digestive area. So it makes sense that if you're nourishing your gut in the right way consistently, you're supporting your immune system in return. And no pill is going to do that as effectively as the diet that you eat will. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. I mean, I've moving we will move on to your myth busters soon but i mean you know we hear all sorts of things in the media about take this and take oh, yeah. that and this is going to cure you from you're going to be a new person if you take this um please don't take charcoal that's one thing i will say a lot of musicians take charcoal capsules away with them it that it's going to wreak havoc rather than do any good so, why yeah, would avoid... you take charcoal I've, I've obviously missed this whole fad thank god yeah. <laughs> Well, let's not even go there. Let's ignore it. Just know that you don't need to. And that's the end of it. (laughs) Um, Moving on to something slightly different. um, I'd love to talk about skin. Mm. You've got beautiful glowing skin. And um, I've actually always had, you know, pretty good skin, never had to worry about it. But now I'm in my 30s, you know, the odd line is starting to creep in. I know the feeling. And I know you've you've actually got a podcast about this Mm. already. um, So I will link that down below in the comments. But do you have any advice for keeping skin young? Are there any foods that promote the production of collagen? Yeah. So like we said before, having protein at every meal is incredibly important. And no collagen powder, despite what we read, is going to do what eating the food will do. But you need to have it alongside vitamin C in order to create the collagen. Collagen is basically the structure of our skin. It keeps it plump. But as we age, we know that we lose around 2%. um, It could be 1% every single year from the age of 25. It's quite a depressing statistic, basically. It just goes down. 
um, and lines are natural, but what we can do is eat more omega-3s potentially because our cells have an outer coating called a cell membrane. And we know that the more cell membranes and the more cushioning we have from these healthy fats, and actually our brain is also made of 60% fat and particularly these DHA fatty acids that you get from omega-3. Now that means eating a portion of oily fish a week at least, one. But for ethical sustainability reasons, if you abstain from fish, this is when I, I would actually advise a supplement alongside a plant-based diet because it's very difficult to get the conversion rate from plant-based sources of omega-3s like avocados, nuts and seeds into the actual form of DHA you want. So you can buy yes. vegan DHA supplements, which may help. And then it's just water and a lot of antioxidants. I'm actually doing a, a lot of work with Lloyd's Pharmacy at the moment. I've got a year-long contract with them and we're looking heavily into skin health wear SPF every single day. It's We're, we're talking more preventative now than mm -hmm. miracle things we can do. So if you think your skin is starting to decline, as mine definitely has, especially since having a baby, it's just sleep deprivation is horrendous. Um, the best <laughs> thing you can do is just work on prevention now. So loads of water, loads of healthy fats, loads of fruit and veg for those antioxidants. And that's the best thing you can do, I think. Um, with regards to the global pandemic, I think for everyone self-employed, it's been a huge challenge mm. learning new skills, suddenly becoming an expert online, streaming yeah. Zoom, media savvy. Um, how has it affected you and your clinic? I imagine you've been busier than ever with people suffering from either not knowing how to nourish themselves properly at home or from suffering with actually working from home and, and struggling with actually not having any social contact and things like that. I mean, all of what you've just said is... It was it was very strange because I had my son April 19th, 2020, just as the first lockdown. I think we were a week or two into the first mm. major lockdown, where no one was even leaving their house. You know, they were scared to yeah. go to the supermarket. Yeah. Um, it was that terrifying time. And I lost all of my work within like a couple of weeks. All brand deals, everything was off the table. That yes, was every, keeping, yeah. uh, everyone lost everything in such a short space of time. And us self-employed people were suddenly like, oh my goodness, I'm not going to pay the bills. I wasn't going to be able to pay my staff. Um, and I was thinking, how am I going to, I'm going to have to pay them and not pay myself. And then we're not going to have anything for the baby. It was all a very unknown time. But actually, as time ticked on, everything that you've just said came into place. And I've had to hire three new members of staff in the past year now to cope with yeah. the demand of people needing support nutritionally. Um, and actually, I already had an online platform with Retrition. And once brands had realised that um, well, we're not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm. They started pushing their marketing budgets towards social media and then things started picking up again and I was able to help and I was able to deliver talks and kind of do my day-to-day -day job but reach more people than I would have done in the clinic. It's worked far better in terms of suiting people's schedules but it's been so sad. It's... It's awful the catastrophic impact it's had on people's mental health and their families and their livelihoods and losing loved ones. We've had so many clients that have lost people. It's, yeah, a very sad time. And I think us self-employed people in general, I know I'm very lucky I'm, I'm in healthcare essentially, so there's always a need for it. Mm. But it really is a time to rally together and support one another and just be kind. I think kindness is so important. I completely agree. And you have, I mean, you've taken off, as you said, hugely online. You're everywhere with all your wonderful, wonderful podcast, um, uh, YouTube, everything, newsletters. Um, 
And I'd love to talk about your podcast, actually, which is called Food oh. for Thought, which you actually started in 2018. It is absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um, you've oh. done to date 118 episodes, I realise, which is Have absolutely I? incredible. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, and the interviews, the interviews for people who don't know sort of cover all things from stress, hormones, maternal health, uh, weight loss, diets, pollution. I mean, so many mm. birth so many different things, you name it. Um, you must have had a really hugely array of very interesting, interesting guests. Um, who's the most exciting or interesting person you've ever interviewed? It's too hard to pick because, like you said, it's been such an... I wouldn't use the word eclectic because it is in the health and nutrition sphere. But I do interview the leading experts and scientists in the world yes. that are currently researching. So I had a whole episode on soy with the leading researcher at the moment in the world. And it, listening to Dr. Mark Messina speak was fascinating. And then I had someone that was an expert on sugar and sleep. And I even had Gary on the podcast talking about his relationship with food and people like Lisa Snowden sharing her modeling career and how that's impacted her mental health, um, not having children. Um, it, it's too hard to pick. I do know that whenever I have Professor Giles Yeoon, who is a Cambridge University lecturer, scientist, geneticist, he's actually got a new book out now oh, um, right. about calories, which is really a fascinating read, Why Calories Don't Count, it's called. And he is wonderful. And he's actually on the TV shows. I mean, he does a lot of um, nutrition TV stuff. So he's always a really funny, interesting person to interview. But... It's too difficult. So too, too difficult. I too I love it when you do meet somebody or or you come across. I suppose in our field, in our fields, we come across sort of superstars all the time yeah. in their in their yeah. um, topic. So you know, meeting a you know I don't know a famous actress is just as exciting as meeting the the world expert on sugar. I mean, it's because oh, it's yeah. just to me, it's like oh, <laughs> proper geek out. You, you and you learn. For me, it's constant learning, and it keeps me on top of my game in terms of you know delivering nutritional information because I get to hear it from the horse's mouth a lot of the time. That's amazing. Absolutely, always striving forward. Um, you can find Rihanna's podcast, Food for Thought, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and I shall leave the link for it in the podcast information for this episode. I will also link the contact to Rihanna's clinic, Retrition, in the podcast notes too. So one of your other series I adore is called Mythbusters with Re, which I actually just touched on um, earlier today, which you put out on Instagram and your newsletter. It is such a brilliant idea. There's so much conflicting um, knowledge on the internet about diets, food groups, supplements. What encouraged you to start this series? Oof. Gosh, thank you, by the way. You've done so much research. It's very impressive. Um, it, it was... I think it's just because I, I got so fed up and I hear these sad stories in my clinic all the time. And I did actually start by calling it Myth Busting Mondays. Right. But then so many people started taking the same hashtag. Oh. It became a bit overpopulated. So I had to add Myth Busting with Re to make sure I had my own unique one yeah. where my audience could find my information. Um, but I was quite proud, again, of being the first to do Myth Busting Mondays back then, which was quite cool. But it... It really just took off because I was, I just didn't know how else to communicate and be heard against the noise. I mean, one, one of the key moments that was quite funny, um, one of the, I think it was the GC, Gemma Collins, was doing a, um, a diet. So for anyone listening in the UK, it's one of the social media influencers from reality TV. 
and she was doing some terrible skinny jabs, it was called, or something, or a terrible tea diet thing. Um, and I used my myth busting with Reed to comment on it. And it got picked up by all the national press. So it was like leading nutritionist slams the GC. And it was awful because it was going around all of the all of the papers and my notifications kept popping out with all these trolls um, telling me to leave her alone. But in a way, it, it got good attention because actually the nutritional science that these things are harmful and they can really hurt people. It was nothing personal against her in particular I think she's pretty fabulous actually but not what she's promoted yeah. so I think it's just useful for people to have a way that's accessible that's not confusing that's not reading a science paper which most people can't do it's quite difficult to dissect a research paper um, and just have the facts in a trustworthy place definitely and I think for a lot of young you know young mm. girls especially are on social media much younger yeah. now and you know if their favorite actress or model something is going to be an advocate for something they're going to they're going to follow suit so if you know yeah. your favorite actress is going to be eating charcoal pills then why not you know exactly so it's exactly. really important and you put up a post today about about it i wasn't actually sure what you who you were referring to but there was certainly yeah. some things in the in the press of, about people you said something about I don't know, all those things about detox teas. Well, that's actually what your liver is for already. Um, yes. You know, we don't need that. So I think it's great. And it also bring it brings it to light, but also it makes it um, relatable and um, mm. and accessible for us. It's not, you know, yeah. I, I'm people are not going to sit and read up on a science paper as to why no. they don't have time. But hearing it in an accessible format from a great nutritionist who's very qualified, um, who's also got a great Instagram and is very, you know, present I mean, online. If it's, it's kind of... Yeah. If it stops someone taking a diet pill, I'm happy. You know, if it saves someone from going through a terrible experience and affecting their relationship with food, that that's definitely what it's for. It's not to pick on people no. individually doing these things. It's really just to, yeah, like you said, just to help people. Yeah, absolutely. And now that nutrition, um, running a business and motherhood are such big parts of your life um, and you're doing amazingly juggling them all, <laughs> is there still space for classical music in it anymore? Uh, um, yes and no. Uh, I had to put it on the back burner when I had Zachary. And uh, to be honest, as you've experienced and everybody's experienced, the gigs just weren't really there anyway. Um I do still sing with my um, my girls in, in Passionata and we do do the odd corporate thing. And I'll sing at a friend's wedding that I've got coming up, which was really nice to receive some lo a lovely heart compliment to that today. But it really is more of a hobby now. And I miss it immensely. It's still so much a part of me. And some days I realise why am I feeling a bit learned? Like I haven't sung today. You know, when it's so much a part of you, just you need to... Yes. You need to get it out. I can't describe it. And I've, I've gone. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And you need to, sometimes for me, it's about being able to make music yes. with other people. Sometimes I, especially in the first lockdown, you know, I was sitting there looking at my violin thinking, I yeah. don't really want to play. But if someone had come with their instrument, I would have yeah. loved to have created that, you know, just the sound vibrations coming yeah. together and, and having that cohesive energy um, is something that I think we've all missed. Um, but it's wonderful that you are able to, sort of keep things up as a hobby and I th I'm a firm believer that if things are meant to be they will be so there'll be a time in your life where you'll you know do much more singing and then a time in your life where where yeah. you won't um and this is a 
people need you now for another purpose, mm. which is to help them during this pandemic um, in what you're so brilliantly trained at. So maybe singing will come back in in another way in a, in a few few years. That's lovely. I hope so. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love to finish today's episode with another of Rhiannon's recordings. So this single is from before her brilliant nutrition days and was recorded and released in 2012. So this is Wild Horses. i 
Well, Rhiannon, it's been such an utter pleasure to have you in the Classical Corner today. Thank you so much for sharing your musical and medical journey with us all and for letting us enjoy some of your glorious singing too. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye.